We're looking this morning at verses, um, let's see, uh, 18b, 18b through 26. If you need the page number, you'll find that in your outline, in your bulletin. Uh, you'll find those page numbers noted for you. This, this week, we are looking at a, a, a biblical view of life. And next week, we'll be looking at these same verses, Lord willing, as we look at a biblical view of death. These two are, are intimately in, intertwined, and so uh, we will talk about both, uh, both weeks. As you turn there, we remind you that we believe that the, that the Word, Bible, is uh, the Word of God written, and that it is our only standard, our only rule of what we believe and what we do, of our faith and our practice. And it is not our thoughts about God. It is God's revelation uh, to us. So hear now the Word of the Lord. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that Through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need you in this time. Father, we know that your word is is not like any other book we've ever come across. For through it, you grow us. Through it, you point our eyes to you. And through it, you you garner, you you produce faith within us. So Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would help the preacher and the hearer alike. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and feet to go and do. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. You know, it's only when we are prepared to die that we can truly live. There are a lot of things that this world says are living. What makes up living? Big houses, expensive cars, exotic vacations, exhilarating experiences. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. But life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. These things reveal rather a short-sighted perspective, not only to this life, but to eternity to come. To focus on these things for our pleasure and our joy and our meaning and our significance tells us that we are looking for heaven here on earth. There are a lot of common sayings that you'll find in the checkout counter, uh, you know, the books and Walgreens and, and grocery stores. It's often wise to steer clear away from those, for there are some good ones, but mixed in with some unhelpful ones. You'll often hear that heaven and hell are, are states of mind, but that's just not true. Both are real places, real destinies, real places that, that we will either spend time in one or the other for all of eternity. It's when we know that what is to come that shapes and flavors and defines how we live in this world. In fact, the only way to have a biblical view of life is to have a biblical view of death and heaven. 
We'll talk about more explicitly, we'll talk more explicitly about um, death and heaven next week. But this week I want to explore how knowing where we will spend eternity changes entirely how we spend our lives here on earth. It's much like an appetizer. It's much like an appetizer. It's not meant to satisfy our hunger. How often have you ever been to a restaurant and you, you order everything on the menu? By the time your entree comes, you're no longer hungry. An appetizer is meant to curb your appetite just a little bit, but ultimately to point you to the better course that is to come. You know, the key to hitting a, a ball with a bat is not to focus on what's in your hands, what, are, what you already have, but what is coming <laughs> and what is coming at you. So too, the key, the key to living a, a God-honoring life is to keep our eyes on the joys of heaven that are to come. Can we say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain? The only way that we will say to live as Christ is to know that we have much to gain upon our eternal reward, upon our death and our immediate presence with the Lord in heaven. So we find Paul languishing in heaven. Oh, excuse me, wouldn't he rather be in heaven? We, we find Paul languishing in prison, a prison most likely in Rome. He's been put there because of his witness for the gospel. He's most likely had his hearing, his trial, and he was waiting for the verdict to come. He doesn't know which way it'll go. It's, he's innocent. He's a righteous man. He's guilty of the charges of spreading the gospel. But he's waiting. There are only two possibilities. Death and acquittal. Which will come? What would be our response to such a situation when we're waiting either news of acquittal or death and, and there's just no telling how it's going to go? What would be our response? Well, Paul's response is a bit surprising. Verse 18b. Yes, and I will rejoice. Really? And I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will, return, this will turn out for my deliverance. Instead of being fearful, he rejoices. How in the world could he do this? Which, whatever way it turns out, either his death or his um, physical deliverance, it will be to the honor and glory of God. He does not fear either one. His eternal security is just that. It is secure. He knows that if he were to die, that he would go and be with the Lord. But if he were to remain, it would mean that he could stick around a while and do some good. He states two purposes, two reasons why he rejoices. And it's the way that the Lord is helping him through this time. For, for how could we or he, apart from God's grace, have such an attitude in such a, a terrible, hard season of life? It's through the prayers of the saints in Philippi. It's interesting that he starts there. And it's because I know the prayers that you have for me. That's the first place he starts, that he has the strength to rejoice in the midst of a terrible Roman prison, but also the supply of the Holy Spirit. The word supply here refers to um, giving generously, graciously, having more than you ever would need. See, whatever happens, it will turn out for his deliverance, literally salvation, either his physical salvation or his spiritual eternal one with the Lord. 
See, his overriding concern is not for his physical welfare because he, he knows what is to come. He knows what's on the line and it has been purchased by Christ. It belongs to the Lord. And therefore, his attitude is perhaps very different than what you or I would have. Verse 20 tells us, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. His eager expectation. This word means to, to, to stand with, with head erect, trying to figure out, trying to see what is to come, looking around, peering around a corner very carefully, anticipating what is to come. But he knows that whether or not his head is still connected to his body, his lips will praise the Lord forever and ever, either on earth or in heaven. Therefore, Paul's able to leave it all in the field, as it were. He's not distracted by the squabbles on the sideline. He's not distracted by the, the, um, the, the preachers who are preaching out of rivalry and conceit. What's his primary concern? His primary concern is for the honor of Christ, whether in my, in my body, whether in my death or life, the Lord will be honored. Where in the world does such an attitude come from? Wouldn't it be great to have this kind of attitude where we are unfazed, we are, we are not fearful, we are not anxious, we are not focused so much on the world around us that we fret when things don't go our way, when we're in a Roman prison, whatever that prison looks like for you right now, but that we could really say to live is Christ and to die is gain. Which of these two I will choose, I do not know, as if Paul could really choose. It comes from knowing that we are secure in Christ. See, the key to living a godly life, a life that honors the Lord, is knowing that when we die, we will be with the Lord in heaven. And this attitude can be ours in Christ. Well, for Paul, to stick around would mean um, time for, for fruitful service for the Lord. To live as Christ is, is one of those phrases we throw around a lot as Christians. We, we know this verse well and we, we throw it around perhaps in the right context even. But to live as Christ, what does it mean? It means to live in the service of Christ. It means to live in dependence on Christ as we seek his glory and not our own. And so for Paul, when he says to live as Christ, he is saying that if I get to live, the Lord grants me a little bit longer than I will get to serve him in that time. We see this in verse 22 very explicitly. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Have you ever had a temporary assignment at work, a special project that you had to work on? You knew it would end at some point. It was only a temporary assignment. It had a a clear beginning and end date. Perhaps it would end when you completed a class or taught a class or, or finished a project or helped get ready for a conference, whatever it may be, or even for students too as you... Um, perhaps go through exams. The thing is that you view those seasons differently, don't you? Because they will end. It's not forever. And so Paul, when he is um, writing, and when he is writing to Philippians, he is in effect saying, look, if the Lord gives me a little bit more time, if the Lord grants me a reprieve, if I am acquitted by the Roman authorities, then I'm gonna use that time for a special project. And that is to work hard for the expansion 
of God's glory. He's going to do it through missionary activity. We think this happened, by the way. We don't know. Scripture's silent, but the historical record seems to indicate that Paul was released and most likely made his way to, the, to Spain where he planted churches, perhaps made his way back to Philippi and the other churches he helped plant, but we don't explicitly know these things. But if he was given a little more time, time for fruitful labor, he would go back and plant more churches and he would go back and visit those churches he'd already founded and it meant for the Philippian church very explicitly Um, a real bonus. We look at verses 24 to 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample calls to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. See, if he were able to stick around, if the Lord were to grant him a reprieve, a life to live here on earth and to honor the Lord and his body here on earth, then that would mean he could return back to the Philippian church. He could continue to write to them and, and seek their sanctification to help them grow in the Lord. Do you see what he's focused on? Is Paul focused on taking that time to go do X, Y, and Z on his bucket list or something he's always wanted to do? I'm sorry, I've always gone to the French Riviera. Please, Lord, give me a little bit longer. No. His whole purpose is, you know, in heaven, we will glorify the Lord forever and ever as we work this world, as we serve him, as we serve each other, as we worship him, as we explore and have dominion over this earth. And guess what? That's what this life is about too. And if the Lord were to give me just a little bit longer, I'm gonna spend my time doing that here as well. Because soon this will end. And so I'm gonna get about the the Savior's work a little early. He hopes to return to them. They've been praying diligently for Paul's release and wouldn't it be great to be able to glorify the Lord with them in a service at his return to him? Well, you know, Paul's view of life is is rare. It is ours in Christ Jesus. It already belongs to us. We are to appropriate it as we seek him and seek to have a, a biblical view of death so that we can have a biblical view of life. But there are a lot of competing views out there, aren't there? I want to explore a few of those in our time that is left this morning. There are several erroneous views of life that undergird the modern worldview. Um, Paul's life was Christ-centered. His view of death was Christ-centered. But commonly, our view, the view of our culture is not Christ-centered. It's, it's what? It's me-centered. You know, all, it all depends on perspective, doesn't it? Perhaps the, the greatest fallacy of today's view of life is that this is all there is. The short-term perspective. This factors in so many ways. That there's, no, there's not going to be a judgment. And there aren't going to be consequences of our actions long-term. That, that's certainly a short-circuited by a short-term view. But it all depends on what we think will happen. What we believe, what we know will happen upon our death. If, if this is it, if this is all there is, then that means that we have to have as much fun, soak up as many experiences and um, resources as we can in this life because this is all there is. You only live once, they say. Yo, that's just not true. You live forever. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have eternal life. But a short-term perspective shortcuts, short-circuits everything. You think about a road trip out west. I've never driven out west. I don't know, perhaps you have, but it takes forever and ever and ever. 
Uh, I see some nods, head, uh, heads nodding. Uh, I would imagine it does take longer than I think, perhaps. Um, such with small children, that would just be such a delight. Uh, but you think about a road trip out west. Now, what awaits you out west will change how you enjoy and how you spend your journey out there. If it's something good and exciting, you're probably going to go a little more quickly, aren't you? You're going to enjoy it along the way. You're going to have fun and enjoy the sights and, and stop where you can and enjoy it. But you know, you're going to hop back up in the car and keep going because there's something really exciting waiting for you. Maybe a new grandbaby. But if it's a funeral, if it's a work conference, perhaps you have nothing waiting for you out in California, but you have to go there. Then you're going to soak up as much time as you can on that, on that uh, trip because that's all you got. But for the believer, we know that the the joys of this life point us to the greater joys in heaven. That we have these little snapshots of what eternity might be like one day and will be like one day. We can't even fathom. Eyes can't see and, and, and ears haven't heard and minds can't conceive of what the Lord has prepared for us. But for the short term perspective, when we think this is this is it then it changes how we view this world. It means that we have a me-centered life. We see this throughout the book of Philippians. This is, this is the pull, by the way, of the fall. When we, um, we are created one way and the fall has affected us in such a way that we are constantly being pulled away from how the Lord has designed us to be. Um, we see this in marriage. We see this with roles between men and women. We see it in mar- uh, the definition of marriage. We see it in authority. We see it in all sorts of ways. But in this, in this context, in Philippians, we see it that people began to build prideful reputations. Okay, if it's all about me, if it's a me-centered universe, if I have this short-term perspective where I don't see the Lord's glory and his honor and what he has for me as the, the central motivating force of my life, then everything becomes about me and I have to be um, building my reputation. This is what was going on last week in verse 17 where people were preaching out of rivalry and conceit. They didn't like that Paul was getting all the attention. And so what do they do? They begin to build themselves up and, and preach in such a way that it brings harm to Paul. I've never been into um, a CEO's office. I've never been into a um, national politician's office. But I'm told that if you go in most of these offices, you'll find a wall of fame. Have you heard this phrase before? A wall of fame. Uh, excuse me, a hall of uh, no, a wall. That's right. A wall of fame. And, and you look back and you've got all these pictures of all the politicians they've been with and every award they got from kindergarten down to the civic club they gave them last week. You know, everybody, everybody they could have gotten a picture with is, is prominently displayed. And what? It's, it's to draw attention to, to, the, to me, to the person. Now, what is Paul's attitude here? He's saying, yes, and I will rejoice. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who's he worried about? His prayer was that either in his life or his death, the Lord would be glorified and honored. Do we have that kind of mentality? Rarely do I. Paul David Tripp, the counselor, has a couple great quotes I want to share. He said, this isn't your party. Uh, you know, um, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. You know, biblically, that just doesn't fit for the, for the Christian, does it? This isn't our party. 
He goes on to say that this world by its very nature was created for the glory of another. This world by its very nature was created for the glory of another. Our lives and our death were created not for our glory, not for, um, to focus on me. They're, they're, they're designed to focus on the Lord. We also see in Philippians a desire to look only to our own interests. Surely you struggle with this with me that we look only to our own interests and not to the interests of others. It's inconvenient to look to the interests of others. When we think of you know, money and resources, these things are not finite. You can make more money. You can get more rest. But one thing that is finite is time. And it takes time to look to the interests of others. You'll never get that time back. We see in verses three, three and four of chapter two, we'll, look at, we'll be looking at that soon. I love this passage. Um, Paul exhorts them to do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. They had a short-term perspective. When we have eternity to enjoy this world and to explore and do all the things we've never had a chance to because of resources, time, or otherwise, we can spend more time focusing on each other. What about anxiety? We see this in chapter four, verses five through seven and following that anxiety was a real problem in, um, in Philippi apparently. He says, look, look, don't be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. But with thanksgiving, <laughs> present your request to the Lord. That's not how it goes. Um, uh, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, uh, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we've memorized it there, but do you know how that phrase starts? Do you know how that passage starts? It's not there. We never memorize the first bit. The first bit is, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. See, the key to not having anxiety is prayer, yes, but it is prayer and recognition. The Lord is near. He is near physically. He is with us. He is intimately with us, but he's also, this is eschatological language. This is end time language. The Lord's a coming. Don't be anxious. The Lord's coming. He's gonna fix everything. Well, finally, with focusing on experiences, I think I won't spend much time here, but This is, I think, the primary way that my generation has um, short-circuited a a godly view of life is that we're so focused on experiences that I have to go do X, Y, and Z to have validity. Have you ever seen anybody post on Facebook a normal day? No, of course not. Because our identities are wrapped up in our experiences, our possessions, what we do. And for my generation and younger, it means doing a lot of things. And those lines of what becomes sinful and what isn't get blurred really quickly. I mean, not biblically, but, but in experience. I need to experience X, Y, to Z to make sure it's not right, wrong, or proper. Well, for Paul to live is Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now, li- now live, in the flesh I live by faith the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do we have a biblical view of life? Can it be rooted because you don't have a biblical view of death? 
One day we will die. We will all die. Maybe tomorrow, maybe the next day, maybe today. We just don't know. Maybe 20 years from now. Christ may come back before we die. Wouldn't that be fantastic? But where's your soul? Is your name written in the book of life? And are you able to yearn for heaven that is to come? The Greek is grammatically improper in the English Paul says it is much more better for him to go and be with the Lord. Do you have a similar view where it's much more better to go and be with the Lord? May today be the day of your salvation, if you don't. May you know the certainty that he has come and he has died for his people, that he might take our sins, he might save us. This is where we're heading to the table here. The table is a visible reminder, is a visible gospel that Christ died for us. It is a visible reminder that if you are sinful, which you are, then you can come to Jesus and he will cleanse you with his blood. That's biblical talk, that's, you know, that's Christian ease for Jesus is going to forgive you and it's because of what he did on the cross for you. He bled and he died, he really died so that we could have eternal life. He was buried that we might be raised. He was raised that we might spend eternity with him. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Father, we thank you that um, we have the promise of eternity with you. For this life is hard. And this life is long. And this life is lonely. This life is full of trouble. And we yearn for the day of Christ's return. And because we are secure in that, we can pray and we do pray with Paul to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Though we look forward to that gain, that economic gain, the the bottom line gain, when when it is better for us to be with you, Lord, we look forward to that day. But until then, Lord, help us to live lives of reckless abandon for your kingdom and the spread of your gospel. That we would be not focused on ourselves, but on you, that in our life or our death, you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.